Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Decent People. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today we've got Adam Jackson of Brain Trust on the show. If you're a fan of Decent People, and there might be five of you out there, you are probably saying, wait, what's going on? Adam was just on like a few episodes ago. And that is true. What it comes down to is that I'm an idiot and uh, I didn't know what I was doing in the early days. And uh, so when we were recording our uh, interview, Zoom, I had not upgraded my Zoom account and I only had that 40 minute limit. So as the interview was going along, all of a sudden I'm seeing uh, you've got you know five more minutes of interview time and then we're gonna cut you off. So <laughs> that is not uh, what you want uh, when you're trying to have a natural conversation. So we had to kind of cut it short uh, before that we got into some of the interesting stuff that Adam and Brain Trust are doing. So uh, again, I'm an idiot. Adam was great on that episode, but we are going to kind of pick up where we left off. Um, and so, how you doing, Adam? Doing well. And uh, th first, thanks for having me back. And second, sorry for not being succinct enough to get to the interesting part within the first 40 minutes. So apologies to you and the audience. Well, it's funny when I'm doing these and I like to talk about people's lives and like their childhood and their parents, it, you know, it, it goes a bit long. And, and so I think that's what, you know, I, I was fascinated by your upbringing and everything. And, but I do have to ask you on your end, did you see that the recording was going to end in a certain amount of time or is that just on my end? No, no, I did see it. And um, <laughs> it was, it was giving me a bit of angst, but also like pressuring me to like, Hey, try to be more interesting here because we have you know constraints are good sometimes but yeah, you're know, yeah, glad totally. to be back either way and totally. i really by the way really really enjoyed your other episodes i love i love this longer format i think it you know i, I think it just does a, a great job of, of giving all the context oh thank you i really appreciate that um all right so if you didn't catch our first episode with adam i'm just going to try to do a quick recap and then adam jump in if i missed anything important but okay you're a kid you don't like authority um, not a good student, came from a humble beginning and really wanted to make some money. Um, came out of college with about $250,000 in student debt, which still kind of blows my mind. So you were looking for something. Um, you were, uh, came to California, tried to, uh, tried LA. It didn't work. Went to San Francisco where the dot-com crash had just happened and kind of cleared out the city. Uh, it, was, it was a nice time to be there, uh, all things considered. And you kind of got in on the ground floor of Web1, where you realized you could build websites for neighborhood businesses and get them to start advertising on the web to bring in foot traffic. That was a very new thing at the time, and you did quite well at that. Um, you uh, went on to create Doctor on Demand, uh, which was a partnership with Dr. Phil of Oprah fame. Um, and then soon realized you weren't qualified to kind of run that business anymore when it got huge. So kind of 
exited that. <clears throat> and right around that time, about 2016 is when you discovered Ethereum. And uh, you talked about, uh, you know, the ERC20 token, which is how you is uh, the Ethereum way of creating a brand new cryptocurrency back then. Um, it kind of blew your mind. And that this now unlocked all these sort of ideas um, for you. And you talked about um, early on, you know, you said you quote, you wanted to own the way you make a living. And I think you were talking about that in the context of Web3. So I'm going to pause here and just see if I forgot anything important or are we kind of like set up now to start talking about brain trust and the, the tokenomics that you guys have uh, behind the project? No, that, that is a great setup. Okay. Um, all right. So as, as, I, as I mentioned in the previous episode, this, this was this model of having a token to incentivize the community and incentivize users and then have a way for the developers to get paid um, was kind of the first way that I understood Ethereum and what it meant and how it was different. And I had said that I, I was surprised that it didn't take off more. Um, you guys are having success with it. And, and so why don't you just quickly, if you can, give an overview of, of the token, who earns it, you know, what it's meant to do and how it's meant to align incentives for the, the, the folks in your network on Brain Trust. Yeah, absolutely. So the I'll first go, I'll talk about how you get the token, the brain trust token, and then I'll I'll talk about why you'd want it and what do you what you use it for. So uh there's dozens of ways to get it, but the primary way, it's an incentive mechanism on the network. So you earn the token by referring new talent to the network, um, or and or being a community screener, so vetting that talent to get them on board, uh, or inviting clients. By the way, 100% of new client activation right now, I just heard this stat yesterday in our all hands, 100% of new clients are coming from the referral program, what we call the connector program, uh, or, or helping onboard those clients. You can also earn tokens by you know writing code, writing copy, doing design work, just anything that like a normal Web2 company would have hired employees to do. You know, We still do have employees, but mostly the community kind of develops this this um, protocol and and does so in exchange for usually some mixture of dollars and tokens. Um, and then the token is, the primary use case for the token is to control the network. So it's our governance token, one token, one vote. Um, token holders can propose changes to the network, like should we change the fees or what feature should we buy next? Or should something in the token economy change? And I, I, can, go, I can go through big examples of how that's happened already just in the last few months. Um, and then there's other features, utility features we're experimenting with the token, like staking tokens along with your bids in order to stand out in a competitive bidding environment. Of course, the opposite is, is, is the case right now. We have a talent-constrained network. And so we're uh, a proposal just passed governance to implement what we call uh, proposal staking. So, so companies that want proposals on their jobs will actually put an incentive, a token incentive along with, hey, if you submit a qualified proposal and we don't pick you, you'll still get some tokens, right? Kind of like- Okay, you're saying you've got more jobs than workers right now on the platform? That's right. Okay, and this is a good point to say, you guys are concentrating on basically IT positions and, and software development, um, blockchain, right? In that, in that area, knowledge workers. There's, there's five types of, of roles that primarily on Brain Trust right now. It's um, software engineer, designer, 
product manager, project manager, and DevOps, kind of the heavy kind of backend stuff. So those are the five types of roles that are needed to build literally any kind of enterprise software around the world. And so that's, it sounds narrow, but that's actually a really deep category. There's, there's you know, over a trillion dollars a year of, of outsourcing just in, the, in that category. Yeah. And then one last thing, I think it would be great to restate. Um, you had a great way of putting it in the previous episode, the old way versus the new way and like Upwork and Fiverr and the percents they take out and then, or you can go to Deloitte and Accenture. Could you just kind of go over that again with the, with the percentages and the rates per hour that you mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if, if, if you're a worker in one of those five types of roles, um, I mean, you can go work full-time at Google or, or Facebook or whatever, but, but the majority of folks who do those roles um, will, will either go to a staffing firm like Deloitte, Accenture, PwC, um, or, or trying to make a living on uh, a marketplace like Fiverr, Upwork. And, and so the old way is, you know, let, let's take the staffing firms because that's the 90 plus percent of the, of the pie there. The, the marketplaces are actually relatively small. Um, the old way is, you know, you, you go get a job at, at Accenture. Um, they give you a steady paycheck and healthcare in exchange for, they tell you what to get, where to go, what to do, and, and exactly, you know, what you're going to be working on. You don't have any autonomy really over who you work for, what you work on and where you do it old way. And by the way, you know, they'll pay you, you know, I, I use the figure that a person from the industry told me a while ago, you know, $75 an hour while they're billing you out at $425 an hour. That's an actual spread we've seen in the marketplace. And so that's the old way. The new way basically inverts all those things, right? This is what we what we strive to accomplish with Brain Trust. Is the new way is you come to Brain Trust, you apply, you create your talent profile, the community screens and vets you and approves you, make sure you are who you say you are, and you can do what you say you can do, and then you pick off client jobs. You set your own market rate, whatever you want to make, whatever you think is fair. Obviously, it's a it's a marketplace, so it has to be competitive. Um, you're going to keep 100% of that rate. So if you say you want to make $200 an hour, you list that up, whatever client takes you is going to pay you 200 bucks an hour. There's a 10% fee that the network, the brain trust network takes that, that takes away from the client, but you still get your 200. Um, you can work as little or as much as you want, and it's fully remote. You can work from wherever you want. Every client on brain trust realizes that it's all distributed now geographically. And so the new way, you, you get marked up only 10% instead of 3x. Um, you can work as little or as much as you want. You can work from where you want. You can take six months off if you want to. Um, and it's a total, and, oh, and if you earn tokens, you have full control. You can vote your tokens. You actually have influence over the network where you make your living, unlike an employee at a consulting firm, which has no influence at all. Yeah. All right. And, and so just to go back a little bit, um, you mentioned... The 10% fee comes from um, the firms that are hiring, correct? That's right. The, um, the, the firm that pays the, uh, the talent, it also pays the 10% fee. Okay. And that's how you, that's how Brain Trust earns its revenue. That's the model there. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, this, this is actually a relatively new um, upgrade to the token economy of Brain Trust. If I can drill into this 10% real quick. So um, when the network launched, the 10% was just paid in cash and would just go into the bank account of whichever node on Brain Trust brought the client. 
then the community, this is really interesting, the community proposed on our snapshot, hey, like, you know, the, the treasury is eventually going to run dry from paying referral rewards and paying out grants, like, we should figure out a way to replenish treasury. And it was vote, proposed, voted and implemented that that 10% fee that the network charges clients should be paid in brain trust token instead of dollars. And so now you'll see those dollars flow from the client into a new smart contract called fee converter. That fee converter contract goes and buys brain trust tokens on the open market and deposits those tokens to the brain trust DAO, which is then used to further uh, develop the protocol based on community vote. Okay. <clears throat> um, so that's a lot to take in. Where, uh, where are you on the risk you face that the, this model and brain trust token could be deemed a security by, by the Securities and Exchange Commission, for example? And, uh, and how, how much due diligence have you done on that? And, and where do you feel the thinking is on, on that uh, at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is a really important point that any project building in the United States needs to take seriously. Um, we uh, partnered with Fenwick and West and here in the US, big law firm, um, really at, at the inception of the project, um, just to make sure we were completely compliant with, with the SEC and everybody else, CFTC and you name it. And um, you know, it's interesting, like a popular argument the crypto community has is that you know, regulations in the US are, are around this are ambiguous. And they're actually not, they're, they're actually really clear. There's a Howey test that you need to fail one or more of the prongs of um, to not be a security. Um, Brain Trust, you know, very easily cleared those hurdles. Um, and people may not like the rules, but the rules are actually pretty clear, right? And, and, and I, I don't disagree that like the rules from 1930s should probably be updated to, for crypto. Um, but to like to say it's ambiguous, I think is, is a bit disingenuous. So um, yeah, brain, brain trust, you know, got a legal opinion. It's not a security. Um, and it's really like, you know, brain trust is a governance token. It has real utility on the network. Its cash value has no bearing on the operational fun the functionality of the network. It doesn't matter what the price is. You know, it's it's a pure kind of pure play down the fairway utility token. So um, it always was that way. It was never built to be like a dividend machine or staking rewards or profit returns. It doesn't do any of that stuff. Um, and so you know, we were um, you know happy to have that kind of clearly defined from the inception of the pro project. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think other projects would be smart to sort of just get that stuff kind of cleaned up, you know, before they, they launch. Okay. Just to play devil's advocate for a second. Um, it, if you are buying it on the open market and there is, you know, there is a market for it, does that worry you that, and, and people hold the token and, that incentive, they, they could be seen as working toward, you know, um, the economic gain of the entire venture, which would then theoretically make the cost or the price of brain trust token go up. And that could sort of get the SEC's attention. Yeah, I mean, you know, the prices of things going up and down doesn't make something a security, right? It's, um, I mean, you could have a, a collectible, an NFT, a baseball card, a set a rare putter, all of those things value could go up and that doesn't that on that in and of itself doesn't make it a security. 
Um, and so Brain Trust is, is a squarely utility token. It's kind of your ticket to the to the network. It's your it's your method of control. Um, and so it's its price will go up and down just like all cryptos do and just like many other assets do that are that have finite supply. Um, and so I don't think price action alone uh, is going to get you know any sort of negative attention from a regulatory perspective. Okay. And then I guess not, without diving into the weeds and the, the Howey test, because it is a little complicated, but one of the prongs, and I believe there are five, it, one of the prongs is that there's a, it's, you know, the venture is controlled by a small group of people who are working to uh, profit from it or, you know, increase its value. And I would imagine having your network of, of so many, I, I think you're around 40,000 people now on your network. Does that seems to me, that's not a small group of people. That's not a CEO and a small team working uh, pre-IPO to, you know, make a tech company, uh, you know, interesting to venture capital. 100% right. I, I think, so I, I think there's actually four prongs of the test and I, I, I can't name them off the top of my head. So it's not, not, and certainly not my wheelhouse of expertise, but what you're saying is true. Like it's, um, if, if you have sort of one company you know, really just responsible for the development of something, you can say it's decentralized, but it's really not, right? It's, and I think, you know, I think I've seen, we've seen SEC action against that. I think that's part of the Ripple case, actually, that, you know, Ripple was the main entity behind XRP. Um, and so that, like, that, that's an important factor. Um, with Brain Trust, we were actually six companies from the start, from well before, so we started centralized, and then followed this path of progressive decentralization. And so we started, you know, as a company in 2018, and then and then we decentralized on mainnet in October, uh, September of 2021. And we actually had, we, we started off as, there were six teams, different companies, only one of which I own and control. The others are completely unaffiliated by me, with me. And those six teams really kind of built up the network over time and now yeah it's it's actually like 46,000 people uh, actively contributing in the network so um yeah i mean i think they, they call that decentralization theater when one startup just sort of you know mints a token and says look we're decentralized yeah yeah and that's a great point you make is that um and i've been i've been saying this for a while now i don't think you can you can't start a project in a decentralized fashion there has to be some centralization there at the beginning otherwise where does the idea come from and, and where's the direction and leadership so that you can bring other people in and then slowly decentralize it over time. Uh, I think a lot of people are learning that in the DAO space now because they're, they're just proliferating in all these different directions um, kind of away from finance. Um, I wonder more broadly, the SEC and specifically chairman Gary Gensler uh, has come in for some pretty harsh criticism from the crypto community. Where do you stand on that? And, and are you, um, I, I, as you just said, there are rules there. They do state from the 1930s and the Howey test was based on uh, someone selling shares in an orchard, uh, an orange orchard in Florida. So not exactly web three um, kind of <laughs> stuff. Web so, minus so, three. <laughs> yeah. What, um, where are you on that? Like, what would you like to see from the SEC? Are you happy? Are you unhappy? And, and where do you think Congress should get involved? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I'm, I, I, I have thought deeply about this topic, although I'm not a lawyer or a regulatory expert. I am, I am an American who, who is, 
had a hand in issuing a, a token. So I feel like I have, you know, a, a, some position here at least. So let, let me start with like, let's, let's, let's approach this from first principles, right? The American securities markets, the, the two big stock exchanges are the most vibrant and robust mankind has ever seen. And the reason, and the reason for that, and there's many reasons, but one of the backbones of that is because there are rules and the rules are enforced, right? The rules are they keep the plant, the leveling level playing field. They um they make it very hard to be fraudulent, right? As a public company. And like we've iterated this, right? Like, you know, from the 30s all the way on, Enron changed things, uh, Dodd-Frank changed things. And like, yeah, okay, like those things made thing made made it harder to go public, maybe made it more expensive, et cetera. But what do we get in exchange for that? The most trusted, robust markets, financial markets on the planet by 10 miles, right? Like no one even comes close. And I like, we all benefit from that, right? Everyone, well, not all of us, everyone who has a retirement account, right? No, we won't get into the kind of the, the wealth inequality thing, which which is another major issue. But, um, you know, so, so the SEC has a large role in protecting investors from fraud, from rule breakers, and you know, enter cryptocurrency. And unfortunately, you had sort of both, right? You had projects building what are ostensibly securities, but claiming because it's on a blockchain, it's not a security. That's not great. And two, outright fraudsters, like we saw this week, the BitConnect folks were finally cornered and et cetera. So, Look, I think there's no argument about them going after fraud in the space. That's amazing. It's great for the space. Um, wh where the contention comes in is like, how should and how, you know, should they regulate crypto? Yes or no. And if so, how? Um, I personally think they should. And like I said, today, like the rules are actually pretty clear. The argument then becomes, well, maybe they're a bit arduous, right? And so um, I agree that you know, the 1930s rules can and should be updated. I actually think some of the um, remarks uh, Commissioner Purse, uh, Hester Purse made last year, she basically advocated for something like a safe harbor where a project could, you know, have a, a grace period of two years or something where, you know, maybe they are acting like a security, but if they can sufficiently decentralize within those two years, then, then it's okay. And then let's define what sufficient decentralization means. I don't think anyone really knows what that means yet. We, we take the ultra conservative viewpoint on at Braintrust of if me, my co-founder, the core teams, if we all disappeared, like just unplugged and went offline tomorrow, would Braintrust still you know, operate and, and be permissionless and, and, and continue to function? And the answer to that question is yes. Um, but I, I don't know if that's an appropriate test or not for, for going forward. So, um, you know, I, there are many in the space who are basically like, hey, just get out, right? Like just ask, there should be no regulation at all. And I think if, if that were ever the case, we'll the space will never have the chance to be as big and thriving and, and as robust as, you know, something like we see with the traditional finance system. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't think telling regulators to just buzz off is the answer. I do think that there are um, certain properties in this, in this industry, like a smart contract who's, who's managing, um, you know, deposits and paying interest on that, uh, or a smart contract that's at the middle of a decentralized exchange, 
what, you know, these are two major things that the SEC regulates in the real world. But if it's a, if it's a bunch of code, how do they deal with that? You know, who, who's, who's liable for that code if there was something malicious or, so I, I, that's where I come down on where these, this has outpaced, you know, the current traditional financial system in enough, in enough of a way, in my opinion, that these sort of things need to be addressed because I don't think, and you know more way, way more about this than I do, as a software developer or somebody writing that code, what am I, what am I liable for? You know, like, I think that needs to be addressed um, so that people can do these things, you know, with the knowledge of what, what the risks are. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I think, I think that recent rule, I think that got rolled into the infrastructure bill that was going to make, you know, anyone who touches these things have to register as a broker. So that would include developers, right? Yeah. Um, I think that got that got pulled out, but that that's arduous, right? I think that that's going too far on the regulatory side. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's an interesting bright line to draw around smart contracts, right? It's like, hey, once something is on Ethereum, we, we all agree, and the SEC, I think, has even acknowledged, like you can't turn Ethereum off, right? It, it cannot be disabled. It, it is quite sufficiently decentralized. Nobody owns it. Um, and so if something is on Ethereum and operating, it maybe it's caveat emptor at that point, right? I, I, I think, you know, holding developed. Now, now, look, that doesn't mean if there's fraud, you can't, like if the developer puts a backdoor in it and, it, and is stealing through it, then he's committing a crime, right? Or, or if you make money on a trade and don't pay income tax, that's tax evasion, right? I think those are like well-worn things, but you know, um, should the SEC have uh, purview over Uniswap, right? I, that's a tough one, right? I, I'm, I don't, I don't know. I, how, how would that even work? Yeah, I, yeah, that's the question I have. And um, another thing, just to fill out your point. You know, the other half of or the other part of the securities market is, you know, debt and bonds and treasury notes. Um, and that's an enormous part of, of global finance and something that the SEC has, um, you know, purview over, like the US Treasury market, you know, which is always said to be the most liquid and, um, you know, deepest market in the world. It's got a ton of different problems on in its market structure, which is like a whole nother episode. So we won't get into that. But, um, yeah, I, I saw I, the securities question is, is fascinating. And I, I really hope that there's some work done soon to give a little bit more clarity um, on where things stand. Because I don't think that um, regulating this market through enforcement actions uh, is, is the way to go here. And that's unfortunately, I think what the SEC has done, uh, not just in this market, but in others as well. Um, so another thing I wanted to just get back to you, uh, you said in the last time we spoke that, you know, your greatest hope is that other kind of industries or services take on this token model and apply it to their, um, um, you know, like, let's say it's like Uber uh, for the car or, you know, um, seamless for food. You know, you've got these middlemen sitting in the middle here taking, you know, around 30% or so of, of the fees um, to, for providing that service. What you've done is cut out the middleman entirely and, and the, the, the profits stay with the people who are, um, you know, part of the network. Are you seeing any movement there or any hopeful signs that, that other, um, other projects are, are taking on this token model? 
Well, um, unfortunately, no, not yet. Um, I haven't. And, and like, let me let me caveat by saying, like, I'm I'm not a full time investor. I don't like I don't run a fund anymore. I'm not. I do. I angel invest out of my family office, but I'm not out there actively seeking deals. So there could be somebody doing this. I'm just not aware of them. Um, I will say that um, folks at Brain Trust get approached pretty regularly, myself and actually more often other people, uh, about expanding into categories like legal uh, or accounting or compliance professionals, essentially just other categories of knowledge workers. Um, I've, I had, I've had lawyers tell me like, it doesn't make sense to for law firms to like have a huge staff of paralegals on salary, right? Like there should be a brain trust of paralegals. And I actually think that that probably will be one of the next categories you'll see on brain trust are other knowledge worker categories. As I've said, and, and you just mentioned, I mean, my greatest thrill would be to see, you know, every time someone pulls up to your house to pick you up or drop off food or groceries, that that person is an owner of the network that is dispatching them and um, and is um, not paying a, a giant fee to some profit-seeking corporation in the middle. Um, but instead, that network is just being run by software. They're, it's essentially self-sufficient. And um, and this, because if you think about it, like th there's no efficiency across categories in the gig economy right now, right? Like you could be you could be an Uber driver with the Uber and Lyft app open at the same time, fine. But you probably don't have the Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, Lyft, Amazon, FedEx, right? There's like 20 companies that have are dispatching drivers to for last mile. And part of the intellectual property or the moat, the economic moat that those companies have are the knowledge and captivity of their driver network, right? And that network is valuable to them and they don't want to share at least it out. They certainly don't want to have market rates paid, right? So imagine if an app were to aggregate everyone who's a last mile worker into one big supply, a tokenized network, like, like the Brain Trust Talent Network, and the companies would then have to come in and compete for those last mile miles and hours, right? Just like Goldman Sachs and Nike and, and, and uh, JP Morgan have to compete for brain trust talent in hours, right? Which effectively makes a, a fair market for the talent on the brain trust network. Why, like, why shouldn't that same thing happen with last mile workers, right? It would be an incredible innovation economically. It would be it dramatically increase the wages and fairness for the, the drivers, right? The supply side, it would make coming in and out of those pools far easier because there's 10 times more demand and you'd cut out the middleman, right? So the, so the, you know, the, 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 the demand pays less and the supply gets more. I mean, it's, yeah. it, that's, to me, it, it's, it'd be magical. Right. And I think we saw that with what Uber did to the taxi industry. Um, and I, but I think what's interesting here is that's because Uber drivers came along with their cars, you know, that's what they needed. That was the capital, so quote unquote, that they needed. If you're talking about FedEx or, or other things where it's like the package is in control of the company, then they, I think they have a lot more sway over, you know, wh whether they would like agree to um, market rates for that last mile. Um, because, yeah. You know, they've, they've got that leverage, I think in that, which is, was interesting, but I, yeah, but, but, but real quick, um, Matt, let's go back to the Uber example, right? So yeah, Uber 
you know, crush the, um, the medallion cartel, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. That, that, and that was great, right? And then they, they start out with, with fleets of black cars and it was an expensive service and like the value, just value stack was still kind of fair. But then they started making people come in with their own cars and then they started keeping the surge pricing and then they started playing these games where the drivers have to compete with each other. And they're, all, they're, all they did, the real innovation there was driving down the effective hourly wage of the driver. And this isn't just Uber, it's DoorDash and Instacart, same thing. And so I mean, Georgetown University did a study on this. They, they, they looked, it was 20, in 2020, what's the effective minimum or the effective hourly wage of a gig worker? It was something like $5.75 or something, yeah. right? So yeah, Uber's great innovation. Yeah, they, 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 they crushed a, a uh, inherently corrupt cartel and then became one themselves. Yeah, that's the rake that you mentioned in, in our last conversation. One thing you said earlier um, really interested me, and that was how uh, there was a community proposal to change the way that the 10% fee was paid from just cash now into, um, into BR, uh, brain trust tokens. What has that been like from you to have that community and to sort of have this crowd-sourced like uh, knowledge base and, and, and group of people, like over 40,000 people who potentially could help you make changes for the better. I, I mean, that must be, uh, just tell me about that. Well, it's, it, look, it's a double-edged sword. I wanna be really honest and, and sort of, you know, genuine about this. Um, there, it, it's certainly like on one hand, being a centralized company CEO, like you have more control, you sort of like, you say it, it happens, right? It's like, you know, th those are nice things. I, I appreciate those things sometimes. Um, when you're decentralized, you still can like control your own node, right? You can still kind of make your own contribution, but you can't create sweeping changes without consensus. And, and so that make, that could make things a little slower, but on the flip side, the other side of that coin is what you just mentioned, like you're essentially crowdsourcing innovation, which it's to me, the real value there is the diversity of new ideas, right? I call it like intellectual biodiversity, like folks around the world are now thinking about this that you would have never found and hired on your own. They come in because they think, you know, first of all, they're probably making a living on brain trust. So they have a best interest and they're thinking of things that we probably never would have thought of, and they can implement them on their own. That that fee change I just mentioned, you know, was was proposed by someone we don't know. It was voted on. It was implemented by folks that that don't work for for me at least. And um, now it's live, right? And it's like it, it's it's amazing how quickly that happened, and just how the community. Now sometimes like. If you go to Discord, right, there's hot debates. You know, I don't think everything that gets proposed is a great idea. And, you know, yeah. sometimes I abstain, sometimes I don't. I don't know. But, but look, it, it's, I would say it's net positive over, over centralized. Um, and the other cool thing is like, well, if like something goes wrong, like it's not all my fault, right? Like it's <laughs> finally, right? It's, it's CYA. Like, yeah. Totally, totally. Centralized. Um, yeah. I, I think that's fascinating. And um, like you were mentioning, the lines of communication are so different in this setup, you know, where you can have this idea get to the right people to um, propose it and then have a vote on it. Whereas if this was a sort of top-down corporation, those ideas might just be languishing somewhere, you know, in some far, far off office and, and, and nobody, know, like that person has a great idea, but they don't know 
how to get it to the right person or they don't feel like they have the, the power to do that in the first place. Um, and I think besides the tokenomics stuff that we've talked about, the social change that this sort of structure brings about is just as powerful. 100%. Like, I, I love that when, when you said, like, a good idea might, might, you know, go to someone's cubicle to die. Like, it's, so what we do, like, if, if, if I have a good idea that I just know, like, my core team, we're a small team, we're, we're constrained, right? We can only do so many things. I'll actually, I'll just throw it to the grants committee, which I'm not a member of. Um, and the grants committee will say, hey, I'll say, hey, like, what do you think about making a grant out of treasury for someone to come along and just do this? And that, they'll weigh it. And, and if they think it's a good idea, they'll, they'll create a grant for it. And then literally someone out of thin air out of, can just appear and, and they do <laughs> and say like, hey, I'll, I'll, here's a proposal. Like, I know how to do that. I'll submit a proposal. And so that, that program just kicked off. It's, it's too early to sort of sing its praises. But um, I think it, it's it's an amazing way to you know decentralize you know forward progress on a protocol. Yeah. Well, Adam, this has been great. I'm really glad that we got a chance to connect again and just kind of dive into the tokenomics and all the different um, cool new things that that your model um, is allowing. So, congrats! It's really nice to talk to somebody who's actually doing this and actually helping people and you know rather than the theoretical side of it which is still so much a part of what you know web3 is about so congrats awesome matt well thank you um so much for having me back i love uh the sort of the in-depth being able to to go down these rabbit holes with you and um really again enjoy your your format and enjoying your other episodes so thanks for having me yeah you're welcome adam and i'm sure we'll talk again soon sounds good take care man That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day. <laughs>